If you raise over $6,000 at the Art Pray Love event, but don't have love, then you have nothing. If you feed over 3,000 families through the food pantry, but don't have love, then your soul goes hungry. If you help teach hundreds of children in war-torn Syria, but don't have love, then your mind remains closed. Now, I'm not suggesting any of these scenarios in the life of St. Peter's is the case. Quite the opposite, in fact. I think this place is defined by the very love it shares. Now, I make these radical statements to echo what Paul was trying to accomplish in today's reading from 1 Corinthians. And in doing this, I want to try to free this, this famous passage from what might be called its prison of familiarity. It's so connected with our wedding rite and with weddings in general that we lose the context that Paul was writing about. He's writing to this small church in Corinth, which sits 50 or so members, because it's a mess. The folks who speak in tongues think they're better than those who prophesy. Those with prophetic powers think they are superior. And the teachers think they're better than all the rest, which I'm sure doesn't resonate with any of the teachers or faculty in this crowd. They aren't taking care of the poor or the sick. They're dabbling around in the mystery religions. They aren't sharing agape meals. In general, they're just acting out. And Paul will have none of it. And in his famous litany of love's characteristics, he's systematically pointing out just what the Corinthians lack. Love is patient. They aren't patient. They aren't being kind to each other. They are envious and boastful and arrogant, which love is not. They insist on their own way. They can be irritable. They can be resentful. They are being, in short, human. And these past few weeks, as we prepared for this afternoon's annual meeting, I too found myself falling short of Paul's lofty standard for living in church. There were times I was impatient, as some of the staff can attest to, and while not being arrogant or boastful, I was envious of weeks when I only had to prepare a sermon for Sunday. When we realized we hadn't sent the invites to the meeting or the links to the annual report yesterday morning, it's safe to say I was slightly irritable. When I complained to John Churchwell, our parish administrator, via text, that he didn't tell me I needed to send an invite, he replied, Greg, I love you. <laughs> but I did remind you on Wednesday. Now, he could have said, and if you know John, he would have said something like, I reminded you on Wednesday, you forgetful old man, or you fool. But instead, he said, I love you. And it changed the energy. It changed my energy entirely. And this, for me, was proof that Holy Spirit has a sense of humor. Because the great irony is I was in the middle of writing this sermon. So just as I'm writing these admonitions from Paul about love, I fall smack into the crater of being human, just like the folks in that small Corinthian church. Now, unfortunately for both of us, Paul's final passages in this reading in Corinthians does give them and me a way out of humanness and all its weakness. In some of his most lyrical writing in the Bible, he reminds us that all things will pass away, but the love demonstrated in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ will always endure. We will grow in our spirit like we grow out of childhood. We see the love of Christ dimly, as in a foggy mirror, but then we will see clearly. And Paul's asking us to be end times oriented in our relations to one another, to love each other as if we're already with Jesus in the new Jerusalem. 
Because when you think about it this way, it doesn't really matter if you're speaking in tongues or prophesying or teaching is a superior skill. It doesn't really matter that the invites went out late. Because we're finally united with each other, with loved ones past and present, with Jesus in that heavenly country. I was tempted, like I imagine many of my fellow preachers in this fourth Sunday of Epiphany, to avoid the quirky reading in God, the gospel, quirky gospel reading in Luke. I want to stick with the relatively safe ground of 1 Corinthians. <laughs> Maybe even add a touch of Jeremiah in the Old Testament reading. And it's comforting, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And how God overcomes the young prophet's resistance with a reassuring word. And in a deeply intimate moment, God puts his hand on Jeremiah's mouth and gives him his words. It would be really easy to avoid Luke this week. But Paul tells us to love as we see modeled in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. The life of Jesus. And this reading early in Jesus' career, when he bursts on the scene and rocks the synagogue in his hometown, shows us a side of Jesus' life that we often forget. First, the reading starts in the middle of the action. He's just finished reading a prophetic scripture, and you may recall from last week, it's from Isaiah, when the prophet Isaiah says he brings good news to the poor, release of the captives, recovery of sight, and the jubilee year when all is forgiven. Jesus boldly states that this prophecy has been fulfilled in their hearing, and they are amazed and admiring. There's no pushback from this crowd. Now, knowing that this scene is not going to end well, you know, with the enraged crowd threatening to throw Jesus off a hillside cliff, I always imagined it was this act of arrogance of Jesus fulfilling this prophecy that led his hometown crowd to anger. After all, no prophet is accepted in the prophet's hometown. But a closer reading shows that it's Jesus who's provoking the folks in the synagogue, the chosen ones. It's become apparent, it becomes apparent in verse 25 when Jesus opens with, the truth is, the truth is, it becomes apparent that this is not so much about what's fulfilled in Isaiah's prophecy, but who gets saved. Israel long assumed that they would be released from the Roman captivity, that they would recover their sight, that the Jubilee year would be theirs. But Jesus' two examples with Elijah and the widow on Sidon and Elisha and the Syrian leper point to a much broader purpose. That Jesus' fulfilling mission was for the Gentile, even the lowliest, most marginal Gentile, the widow, the leper, that maybe they'd be released before the Jews, possibly even instead of the Jews. Now this young, provocative Jesus is changing the narrative, is changing the story, God's story, and the men of the synagogue will have none of it. So they chase him to the hilltop, and he simply passes through them in the midst and goes on his way. Jesus isn't the victim of hometown jealousy. He's the provocateur. And he's introducing a new narrative, a new story, and it comes from the most unlikely of places, from Joseph's son, a Nazarene. Nothing good comes from Nazareth, right? So if Paul instructs us to look to the life of Jesus for a taste of the end times, what can we learn from this synagogue interaction? I think we're being called to look for the new stories, the new narratives that God is introducing, even if they come, and especially if they come from the most unlikely of places. 
That is, as Martin Luther King Jr. famously quoted, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice is true. Where is this new narrative breaking out right now? Where might the jubilee year, that once in a generation year of leveling inequality, releasing oppression, restoring sight, where might that be happening? It's tempting, but too politically fraught, to look at some of the new voices emerging in the national discourse of late to try to find a new prophetic voice. But in a politically divisive times like these, I, for one, I'm not going to go there. I think we're being asked to look bigger. Now, it's fashionable to blame millennials, the the generation currently in their late 20s and early 30s, for the demise of pretty much everything that we, their preceding generations, hold dear. They're killing the auto industry as they choose to go without cars. They're killing cash, bike shops, canned tuna, mayonnaise, country clubs, fabric softener. And they're even killing cursive handwriting. (laughs) Now, it's hard to believe this group of young women and men can have so much power. But this generation is also the most diverse, the most accepting of gender difference, of LGBT rights, of racial justice that we've ever seen. Having weathered an economic meltdown, they're less materialistic, less concerned with status and wealth, and more empathetic to those on the margins, those who don't have as much. And as I think about it, Jesus, were he alive today, would be a millennial. Not just because of his age, but his willingness to start a new narrative, like we hear in today's gospel. To see through the artificial divisions that the establishment wants us to see. For Jesus, it was Jew and Gentile. For us, maybe it's race or socioeconomic status or gender identity or political affiliation or maybe all those. Now, I like to joke that people my age mess things up so the millennials can fix it. And those millennials listening to this, many of you in the audience, I know there aren't many because apparently millennials killed religion too, but just know that, that we are counting on you. We really need you. But I encourage the rest of us also to listen to those voices out there, those millennial voices on the fringe, because in their calls for justice, in their colorblindness, in their, in, in their calls for income equality, maybe they're showing us a new story, God's new narrative, a new way to love each other, as Paul insists that we do. Now, we may not find them or hear them the way we're used to in the newspaper or on TV, and we may have to send a few text messages to reach them. <laughs> But maybe those voices are what we need to hear to remember that we see in a mirror dimly and that someday we'll see face to face. Those voices may remind the rest of us of our humanness, our tendency to boast and be irritable and envious, that instead of boasting or being irritable or envious, we'll all remember, like Paul, that love is the greatest of all, that love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things, that love never ends. Amen.